Thomas Merton once said, every moment and every event in every man's life on earth plants something in his soul. Welcome to the 18th episode of St. Diffness Playbook, the SDP if you want to be cool. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want everyone to realize that everything that happens to us, the good, the bad, the seemingly meaningless, everything plants something in our soul. Everything is meant to bring us closer to Christ. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, Mike came by to ask, have you ever addressed caregiver stress? Everyone is touting resilience as a cure these days, and that only seems to place the blame on us and not on the system which stresses us out. I've lost hope at work and know many others have as well. No one ever addresses us, the nurses, physicians, and others that have to pick up the pieces in one room after a death and walk into the next patient's room like nothing ever happened and continue on our way, and I can't do this much longer. This is such an important topic, and thank you, Mike, for bringing it our way. Let's all take a brief moment to pray for Mike and all caregivers who go to work every day to help people, to pour themselves out for others, only to experience vicarious traumatization and hopelessness from the very work they hold so dear to their hearts. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection implored thy help or sought thine intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O mother of the word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. In the not-too-distant past, one of my roles at work was managing the inpatient social workers, and that often involved stepping into the hospital to either get directly involved in intense situations like the ones you described in your question, or stepping in to support my team after they had to be in such situations seemingly on a daily basis. The things helping professionals see, hear, and experience on a daily basis are traumatizing. You can't listen to a person share their story of unbelievable abuse, loss, or suffering without being affected. You can't watch a human being die, pull yourself together just enough to support their grieving family, and then go into another room five minutes later where you get yelled at by a frustrated patient or family member without breaking down immediately upon getting back to your office. The idea of resilience is a nice idea, but for me, I see it as setting up a self-defeating moment. Thinking, I'm going to be resilient, I'm not going to let this stuff get to me, isn't the best path forward. Instead, it's about working on developing a toolkit of coping skills to help us cope with caregiver stress. So it's better to think, okay, when I experience something traumatic today, what am I going to do for self-care? Of course, self-care looks different for everyone and includes anything from prayer to exercise to eating to reading to playing carelessly with the kids once you get home, etc., etc. But the important thing is to take some time when you're not feeling overwhelmed and write down the things that help you take care of yourself. That way, when you are feeling overwhelmed, you can just go to the list and not have to try and be creative at a time when your brain simply can't. We'll be praying for you, Mike. 
Next up, we have Nat stopping by. I was wondering if you could give some mental health tips for gay Catholics. I want to follow the Bible in its entirety, but I also want to follow my heart. To me, the love my girlfriend and I share for one another feels right, but the Bible states otherwise. I love God so much and want to make him happy. It can be a mental struggle to discern what is right, and often it feels like there is no good option. I'm ashamed to say it, but sometimes I'm upset with God because I never chose this battle and I always feel like I'm losing it. I wish I could reach through the headphones and give you a hug, Nat, but since I can't, I want to ask everyone to stop for a minute and pray for Nat with me, that she can experience the presence of God this very day, feel how much he loves her, and have her heart filled by his grace. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. I can only imagine how difficult this must be. And I want to start by saying that your desire and passion for wanting to follow Christ is an incredible example of holiness, and it's an inspiration to me. I've struggled with quite a few church teachings down through the years, and I've also found myself frustrated with God at times for his church teaching uh, certain things that have made my life different or harder than I feel like it needs to be. And I've come to realize, even though I constantly need to re-realize it again and again, that this is part of the daily struggle to choose Christ above all things, even above those people I love here on earth. This is obviously 100% easier said than done, but I think there's holiness in an openness to God's will when we feel baffled by it because it seems to go against something that we see as good. A lot of times we focus on things Christ taught that feel right, and we tend to neglect how incredibly intense some other things he taught are. The example I think of here is Matthew 10:37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. This is such a heavy teaching, and sometimes we downplay it. We focus on the carrier cross thing and reframe it to be like, we have to endure suffering and leave it at that. But it's deeper than that. It speaks directly to your question and to the question all of us have had at one point or another. He is speaking to you, and he is speaking to me, and he is telling us that he is the one we need to place at the top of our priority list. And that's so much harder in our reality, uh, in our experience, than we give credit for being when we hear this gospel on a Sunday morning and say, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So tips, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to show you the way, ask Christ to give you the grace to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say and the strength to follow it. I know I recommend the heavy prayers quite a bit on the podcast, but the seven sorrows of Mary, the stations of the cross, prayers that resonate with you, your experience, your life, and help shed light on the idea that holiness lies in leaving our plans, our feelings, and our desires for control, happiness, comfort at the door while Christ empowers us to carry on. I'll be praying for you, Nat. And again, I just want to say thank you for giving me an incredible example of a beautiful love of God and desire for holiness. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to dive into St. Maria Goretti. (laughs) 
The daughter of a poor Italian tenant farmer, Maria never got to go to school and thus never learned to read or write. Her father died when she was just nine years old, and her family had to share a home with another family just to get by. When she was just 11 years old, the other family's 20-year-old son, Alessandro, came into the home, grabbed her, and pulled her into the bathroom intent on raping her and threatening her with death if she didn't allow him to. There was a physical struggle, and her continued resistance led to Alessandro stabbing her 14 times. Doctors tried unsuccessfully to save Maria, and prior to her death, she famously expressed her forgiveness for Alessandro and stated that she wanted him in heaven with her. Alessandro went to jail and was unrepentant until he met with a local bishop and later had a dream that Maria gave him lilies, which burned up immediately once he grasped them. After his release from prison, he went and apologized to Maria's mother. She forgave him. They attended mass together, and he began to pray daily for Maria's intercession. As everyone knows, he was present at her canonization in 1950, and he actually became a lay Capuchin brother and lived in a monastery until his death in 1970 at the age of 87. Maria Goretti's incredible forgiveness of her attacker is a beautiful source of inspiration for all of us. She saw Christ in Alessandro, and she was Christ to Alessandro. And her ability to forgive him sets the template for what all of us need to do to those who have wronged us in our lives. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, and we're going with a prayer for healing from abuse. Dear God, we ask you to help all those who suffer from abuse. Help them find healing and peace in their lives. May Maria Goretti, who was strengthened by your grace, join with us in prayer for the healing of all victims of abuse, particularly those abused as children or young adults. Grant us your love that we might reach out to them in your name with hope in times of trial. As Maria prayed for her attacker, grant us the grace to pray for the true conversion of all involved with the abuse, that they might seek your mercy through prayer and penance. Loving God, pour into our hearts and lives your healing spirit, that the sacredness of every human person might be respected and protected as the precious image of God. Help us to live in the peace which Maria Goretti had found in Christ, and in the love of his mother Mary. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Alyssa kicks us off. Can you talk about dissociative identity disorder? I used to have a best friend who had this, and I brought it to her attention that she hadn't really been a friend for a few months, and now I've completely lost her. I still want to be friends with her, but I'm just giving her space. Seems uh, some of it might be demonic because it's leading her away from the church. Alyssa, I'm so sorry that this relationship has gone in this direction, and I'll ask everyone to pray with us for you and your friend. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I'll start by saying this. Dissociative identity disorder is incredibly rare. I know in the world of TV, movies, and daytime soap operas, multiple personalities is a frequently used trope. But in the real world, some studies put the prevalence as low as 0.4%. Compare that with something like bipolar disorder, which impacts around 3% of people in the United States. Cracking open the DSM-5, we see the criteria needed for a diagnosis of DID. Distinct identities are accompanied by changes in behavior, memory and thinking, 
ongoing gaps in memory about everyday events, personal information, or past traumatic events, and the symptoms cause significant distress or problems in social, occupational, or other areas of functioning. The APA helps us fill in some important information. People who have experienced physical and sexual abuse in childhood are at increased risk of dissociative identity disorder. The vast majority of people who develop dissociative disorders have experienced repetitive, overwhelming trauma in childhood. Among people with dissociative identity disorder in the United States, Canada, and Europe, about 90% had been victims of childhood abuse and neglect. And we continue with the APA to take a look at the increased suicide risk associated with this diagnosis. More than 70% of those diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder have attempted suicide. So we have to pray for and walk with our friends as best we can who are suffering from this. Certainly, I would say that giving your friends space is a great idea, and hopefully the situation will present itself where you can engage in a relationship again in the future, as long as you feel like it'll be a healthy one to bring back into your life for both of you. As for the question of demonic influence, I can't say for sure since I don't know the details of your friend's behavior, but I want to caution thinking about demonic influence and mental health diagnoses in this way. Mental illness is not a result of demonic forces. Mental illness is a health issue that needs to be treated as such. And our empathy toward those of us suffering from mental illness needs to be cranked up to 100, especially for those we know suffering from dissociative identity disorder, keeping in mind that these symptoms develop in the context of incredibly traumatic life events. While symptoms related to mental illness may sometimes lead people to grow distant to the church for various reasons, not always, of course, it doesn't necessarily follow that their illness is due to demonic influence. I hope that makes sense. While your friend is taking space, pray for her, ask God to heal her, and give her peace. And hopefully you'll be able to reconnect at a more peaceful time in the near future. Sophie's up next. Can you talk about borderline personality disorder and the steps to healthy relationships, even if it means not engaging in a close relationship with a mother uh, in a mother-daughter relationship? Thank you, Sophie. We've had quite a bit of questions on this topic come our way, so I know this is something a lot of people want to talk about, and I feel so blessed that you toss it into the hat. Real quick, because I like to make sure we're all on the same page, we'll crack open the DSM-5 again. Borderline personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, self-image and emotion, and as well as marked impulsivity beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by five or more of the following. Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. A pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by extremes between idealization and devaluation, also known as splitting. Identity disturbance, so markedly or persistently unstable self-image. Impulsive behavior in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging, so like spending, sex, substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating. Recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, or threats, or self-harming behavior. Emotional instability in reaction to day-to-day -day events, like intense episodic sadness, irritability, or anxiety lasting a few hours. Chronic feelings of emptiness. Inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger, so like frequent displays of a temper, constant anger, physical fights, and transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms. So to have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, five of those need to be present at least.
Borderline personality disorder has picked up a lot of stigma down through the years, but for those who engage in treatment, the most well-known of those being dialectical behavioral therapy, there is a great deal of hope for recovery and wellness. If anyone listening has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or thinks they might have it, I want you to hear this. You are a good person. You deserve all of the good things God has in store for you. Nothing that you did led to this diagnosis. It is not because of some failing or personal weakness. And there is a path to wellness that's open to you. And I pray that you find it and experience everything that life has waiting for you. To answer the question about relationships, I found this info helpful from Healthline to be um, to be right on the mark here. A relationship with someone with BPD can be, in a word, stormy. It's not uncommon to experience a great deal of turmoil and dysfunction. However, people with borderline personality disorder can be exceptionally caring, compassionate, and affectionate. At the same time, it's important to remember that people with BPD are sensitive to abandonment or rejection. Many are hyper-focused on perceived signs that a friend or family member isn't happy or might leave them. When a person with borderline personality disorder senses a shift in their partner's feelings, whether real or imagined, they may immediately withdraw. They can become angry and hurt over something a person without BPD would not react to. These emotional switchbacks can be difficult to handle. However, the stability of a relationship is itself can have a positive effect on the emotional sensitivities people with borderline personality disorder experience. So in conclusion, as always, good relationships take a lot of work and trying to be in a good relationship with someone who has borderline personality disorder may take a little more work, including setting boundaries, letting the person know that even though there may be times when you have to, you know, have some separation, you still love and care for them. But it can also be beautifully worth it. At the same time, we always have to remember that our own health and well-being must be respected and considered when we're engaging in a relationship with others and find and maintain that tricky balance. Anna wraps us up. I came from a single parent family. My dad was violent and cruel and he left our home when I was four. He left the night I told him to leave my mom alone. I have always had a problem with confrontation since then. My mom over the years suffered from depression. There were times the house got filthy and times we couldn't afford to eat. School was my sanctuary. And now I'm a mom myself to three kids with autism, age 11, 13, and 15. They desperately need order and boundaries, but I find it impossible to set the boundaries and enforce the order. I feel as though I don't have it in me. My house is cluttered, which I hate, but I'm feeling called to a different way of living and don't know how to do it. Any tips? First, Anna, I want to thank you for raising three children and desiring to seek what God wants for you and for them. It's an incredible witness. Next, I want everyone to join me in praying for you, your children, your family, and everyone else who finds themselves in a similar situation, that God may enter our hearts and give us the peace we so desperately need this very day. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Anna, I don't know you, and I don't know the details of your life outside of what you just shared, but simply based on what you shared, I want to say this. You are not responsible for your father leaving your family. You are not responsible for your mother's depression, her apathy, or her hopelessness. You deserved and still do deserve every good thing that God wants you to have in this life. And perhaps you've already worked this part of it out, but your father's violence and cruelty, his walking away from his family, and your mother's resulting emotional and psychological reaction to all of that, none of this was your fault or because of you in any way. 
Okay, so my first piece of advice for you is to take care of yourself. It's impossible to be a parent, let alone a parent of children with special needs, without taking care of ourselves. That'll mean something different for all of us. It might mean therapy. It might mean taking time to get out of the house with friends. It might mean asking an adult sibling to help because we're feeling overwhelmed. The important thing is to discover whatever kind of self-care works for you and then incorporate it into your life without guilt, without shame, because we all need it. Therapy, of course, would be my big recommendation. Being a therapist, I know I'm a bit biased. Therapy that helps you learn how to set boundaries in a way that's healthy and helpful. Therapy that helps bring you some peace. And therapy that helps you learn to navigate life in general again. I would argue something we would all benefit from. My biggest piece of advice for boundary setting is consistency. Kids need to know what to expect, when to expect it, and to have it be repeated again and again. It's so hard to be consistent as a parent when you get tired, hungry, overwhelmed, stressed, or just so over having to be consistent all the time. But it's really an important key to keeping kids feeling safe on track and able to regulate their behaviors and emotions. Perhaps taking one small step toward order and boundaries would be a great jumping off point to move things forward. Think of a small thing they could do, organizing a drawer in the kitchen for you, clearing off the dinner table, setting up a schedule for the day, setting up one new family rule that can be easily followed. It's easy to get overwhelmed, but taking small steps can help you feel accomplished and give even the smallest sense of order in the house. I'll be praying for you and uh, ask that you pray for me as I try to navigate all this as well. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.